What is going on, One Week Season fam? JM to win here. It is Friday evening. Welcome to the Week 11 edition of the OWS Angles podcast. Week 11. It's an interesting week. There is not a ton to really love on this slate, but unlike last week where there wasn't a ton to love and it was really difficult to get a handle on the slate for our typical approach. This week, there's certainly plenty to think about, plenty to consider, plenty to look at. And uh, yeah, it's a week that sets up really well for the OWS fam. So I'm excited to get through the Angles podcast, through the player grid, kind of get all of this in place for you guys so you guys can see where my thoughts are at. Balance that off of where your thoughts are at as we head into the weekend. So as I record this, the my player pool is mostly set. The player grid is not yet written. So um, we'll have a few, you know, a few extra things to look at in the player grid, a few adjustments probably between here and there. But uh, I have a pretty good sense of how I'm seeing this slate and uh, really cool that there's a lot that we get to dive into in regards to what makes this slate unique, what gives us an edge on this slate through the bottom-up build. You'll see what I mean here in just a moment. But uh, yeah, as always, uh, we try to hit on some thoughts about DFS, some thoughts about strategy, some thoughts about that week's slate specifically, some thoughts on angles for that week's slate. A lot of the things that we typically hit on are all going to be hit on through the bottom-up build, or I should say bottom-up builds this week. Um, We've had a couple weeks since we switched over to this correlated and leveraged bottom-up build. We've had a couple weeks where we have a straight bottom-up build that's kind of more the straight value plays, and then the the correlated leveraged bottom-up build. Uh, This will be one of those weeks where we have two different bottom-up builds, and in fact, there could have been five or six different leveraged bottom-up builds. Some of this takes into account ownership projections as they stand on Friday evening. So this could obviously change as far as where the leverage is. But regardless, it gives us a great opportunity to dive into some of these discussions and get a sense of how we can be building rosters that not only have good players on them, but that are better built than what the field is building and put us in better position for first place in tournaments. So With that, we're going to go ahead and dive right into this week's bottom-up build. As always, if you're new to the bottom-up build, this is uh, trying to get us in the habit of, instead of being those players who start at the top and figure out what high-priced players they want to play and then figuring out what value they can jam in to make it fit, we like to go from the bottom-up and find the value plays we would actually feel comfortable with heading into the slate using on our rosters. This allows us to get a sense of where we have flexibility, where there are places where we can spend up in salary. Unlike past years, there were points last year by you know the last third of the season where we had maybe 3,600 left in salary or 4,400 left in salary on the bottom up build. This week we have 10.4K left in salary. So There are obviously some higher priced pieces that you might be drawn to, you might be interested in. Um, You don't necessarily want to leave 10K in salary on the table, but this just shows you that there are certainly ways to go 
this week in terms of getting good quality value plays. And again, there are a lot of different ways to go about it this week. Uh, Again, as noted a moment ago, we are trying to use this bottom-up bill to not just go strict value, but to also use this as an opportunity to talk about how these pieces fit together and why the roster is being built this way. And so, again, right now we have 10.4K in salary left over. So out of a 50K salary cap, we'll basically pretend that we're instead of being in a competition where everybody has a 50K salary cap to work with, we will pretend that we're in a competition where everybody has a 40K salary cap to work with. So we can also see how we would put this type of roster together in order to have something different from the field. And again, something that is correlated so that it gives us a clear shot at getting a higher score with fewer things needing to go right. And it's leveraged so that if the things that the field is on miss, we are on the things that are hitting instead Uh, those are the sorts of things we want to be looking for in terms of moving toward first place in a tournament. As always, if you're playing tournaments, you're not aiming to cash. You're not aiming to get a good score. You're aiming for first place. It doesn't mean you're going to get there every week, but you should be building with first place in mind, and you should be able to assess your rosters and your process that went into those rosters based on how good of a shot you gave yourself at first place. And that doesn't just mean... Getting good players, it means also putting together your roster in such a way that uh, you have a higher mathematical probability of getting a first place finish. So with all of that out of the way, let's dive in. And we're going to start at the quarterback position. In fact, we'll start at the quarterback position and the wide receiver that we will be pairing this quarterback with. And on this version of the bottom-up build, these are going to be our two most expensive players. Now, we get an interesting angle here in that, I guess I'll step back a moment. So I was looking at all these games earlier in the week, and one of the things that stood out to me was that the Washington football team has played five games against non-NFC East Opponents. We all know how bad the NFC East is. They've played five games against non-NFC East opponents. All five of those opponents have scored at least 30 points against Washington. Now, I'll note that there have been some good offenses in there. Arizona scored 30 points. Cleveland scored 34. Baltimore scored 31. The Rams scored 30. And Detroit scored 30. Again, all good offenses, but Arizona has four games under 30 points this year. Cleveland has four games of 10 or fewer points. Obviously, uh, those games came against Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Wind, and Wind. But again, uh, these are not teams that are just guaranteed to go for 30 in any matchup. The Ravens have five games under 30 points. Detroit has seven games out of nine under 30 points. And even the Rams have six games under 30 points. How do the Bengals stack up against these other teams? Well, the Bengals have scored 30-plus four different times. They've scored 27-plus five different times. How good is the Washington defense? There was talk earlier in the season that the second, like talk earlier in the season from film analysts and from people who paid very close attention to this Washington defense 
that this secondary wasn't as good as it looked, that it wasn't as good as the results had shown. And then that take kind of got brushed aside as the season has gone along, and we've continued to see the Washington defense playing well. But again, we have five games against non-NFC East opponents. All five of those teams scored 30-plus. People are not going to be on the Bengals this week. What's really interesting here is that as of this point in the week, Friday, UF Collective has Alex Smith projected at at under 3% owned. Uh, Levitan at at ETR has Alex Smith projected at 3% owned. But Osimo has Alex Smith projected at 6% owned. Yesterday, he had him projected at about 8% owned. If things end up trending over in that direction and Alex Smith ends up being higher owned, one of the things that I was looking at here originally at the start of the week, I, I kind of had, I was messing around with some Alex Smith rosters. And as I got deeper into the week, I started thinking if Alex Smith is 5,200, Joe Burrow is 5,500. If Alex Smith is putting up a 22 or 24 or 25 point game, that almost certainly means that we are in a game environment where Joe Burrow is passing a lot. And if Joe Burrow is passing a lot, he's probably outscoring Alex Smith. He would be throwing more passes than Alex Smith in this scenario, and he would be throwing the ball further downfield than Alex Smith in this scenario. So if we end up getting ownership that's, you know, basically these two even or even Alex Smith a little bit higher owned than Joe Burrow, you get some really nice leverage by going Joe Burrow at 5,500 instead of going Alex Smith at 5,200. So Joe Burrow is on this bottom-up build. I threw T. Higgins on here at 5,900. You could go with uh, Tyler Boyd. You could even go with A.J. Green. You take on more risk with A.J. Green given how up and down he has been this year as far as uh, his on-field play, even his on-field effort. But any of these guys could fit in a build like this. And then what I would want to do here is say not only, okay, I'm going to take Burrow and a Bengals wide receiver instead of Alex Smith and Terry McLaurin, but if I'm going to be doing this, I also want to leverage the other side of that. So Terry McLaurin is going to be on the field basically every play, and he's going to get eight to 10 targets. But as we know, these are not going to be downfield looks with Alex Smith under center these throws have been shortened up quite a bit. Last two weeks, he has nine targets, eight targets. Uh, He has a 115-yard game and a 95-yard game, but the 115-yard game came on a busted play where he had a bunch of yards after the catch. Uh, His long catch in the 95-yard game was 26 yards. It's just not the nature of this offense to be attacking deep downfield. So Terry McLaurin, excellent player, unbelievable player, as I've talked about. Um, I think one of the top 10, 12 wideouts in the NFL but if we're looking at spending 6900 for eight or nine targets from McLaurin, why not spend 3300 for four or five targets from Cam Sims? Cam Sims actually has a very similar role to McLaurin right now. He is on the field every snap. So he's on the perimeter. He's not running the routes that best fit what Alex Smith is going to do. But neither is Terry McLaurin. And so basically, if, uh, if we can get, if you're paying 1K or a little over, uh, or, or 1K for a little over one target from McLaurin, again, we say he's about 7K and we're projecting eight or nine targets. It's better 
to take Cam Sims with basically the same number of targets that you're buying uh, as far as your price spent per target earned at substantially lower ownership, 3,300 Cam Sims is an interesting piece to put in here. Not a guy I am prioritizing this week, not a guy I'm going out of my way to roster, but I probably will have anywhere from two to four Cam Sims rosters on my 19 builds. And again, in this type of setup where we're talking about leverage and how to build things so that it's just different from what your opponents have. Well, if Terry McLaurin misses, it's likelier that Cam Sims is hitting. Uh, If Alex Smith hits, it's likely that Burrow's hitting for more points. And so we get ourselves in position where, uh, based on a game flow, that uh, a game environment that other people would be betting on, we actually are able to bet on it in a better manner, a manner that gives us a better shot at first place if we were, if we were able to play this slate out over and over again. So starting point for this bottom-up build is Joe Burrow, T. Higgins, and Cam Sims. The next place I'm going to go is not a leveraged spot at all. Or maybe it will be. It'll be interesting to see now that Galladay is going to be out for the Lions, now that DeAndre Swift is out for the Lions, people are probably going to try to figure out which piece from the Lions they want to go to. Now let's look at this game for a moment. We, we talked about it in the NFL Edge, obviously, but we have... A couple teams that don't rack up a lot of plays. And more specifically, we have a Panthers team that plays extremely slowly, that forces opponents to throw the ball short, which forces opponents to kind of labor through their drives. Drives take a longer time against the Panthers. Uh, The Panthers hold on to the ball, play slowly, don't pick up chunk gains. And so again, their drives tend to last a while. And so we end up with a game environment in these Panther spots where both teams end up running fewer plays than you would see in a typical game. Our projection for the Lions in this spot should be around 60, 61, 62 plays. Now, what we've seen from the Lions in the past is that unless this game gets out of hand, they're going to throw the ball 30 to 33 times. It could be even lower with the Panthers limiting play ball. You know, it could be 28 to 33 pass attempts for Stafford. And with Teddy Bridgewater, I'll say this, it's Friday night. Schefter reported that on like Thursday, reported that Bridgewater's not going to play. Rappaport reported on Friday that Bridgewater still has a chance. As we've talked about, Rappaport is wrong almost all the time. And, or I shouldn't say almost all the time, but he's wrong way more frequently than anyone else. And Schefter is almost never wrong. Typically what we can glean is that Rappaport gets fed information from agents who want to get certain information out there for their players, or he's fed information from coaches who want to get certain information out there uh, for opposing teams. In fact, it was this same team just a couple weeks ago that the report was that Christian McCaffrey was going to rotate series with Mike Davis. If that had been even remotely the plan, then Mike Davis at least would have played the second series of that game or the third series of that game, or the fourth series of that game, they wouldn't have just said, oh, well, Christian McCaffrey's running well, let's just keep him going. Of course he was going to be running well. He's Christian McCaffrey. The That information was fed to Rappaport, specifically so that that report would go out there so that the opponent opponent would think, okay, we have to be aware of Mike Davis as well as Christian McCaffrey. 
Uh, from that same team, we now have a report. Well, Teddy Bridgewater might play. This seems very much like the type of report that the Panthers want to get out there this week in order for the Lions to have to account for three different potential quarterbacks. I say all that to say I don't expect Bridgewater to play. I would trust Schefter on this one, uh, even with his report coming out earlier in the week. So if Bridgewater doesn't play, the chances of the chance of the Panthers forcing the Lions to go pass heavy are pretty slim. So while everybody's looking to see, okay, what wide receiver do we want? Galladay's out. What wide receiver do we want to take from this Lions team? Well, let's break it down like this. If Stafford throws 30 times and we give seven targets to Hawkinson and we give seven or eight targets to the backfield, that only leaves us with 15 or 16 or let's get optimistic, 17, 18 targets remaining. Uh, did I mention that Amendola is out? Amendola is out as well. So now we're looking at probably seven or eight targets for Marvin Jones, Any really anywhere from six to nine or 10 targets for Marvin Jones, uh, but probably seven or eight targets for Marvin Jones, three or four for Marvin Hall, five or six for Quintez Cephas. And nobody really jumps off the page in this spot as a result. But let's go back to that seven targets for the backfield. So in the Lions' last four games, they have given 6, 13, 7, and 8 targets to running backs. So 6 to 8 targets is a very comfortable projection here for running backs to be seeing. Adrian Peterson has one game this year with five targets. He has one or fewer target in every other game this season. He has uh, like a 40-year career Telling, oh, he has two targets in one other game, three targets in week one. But uh, week six, one target. Week seven, one target. Week eight, one target. Week nine, five targets. Week 10, one target. He has like a 40-year career telling us that he's much better running the ball than being used as a pass catcher. You know who is used well as a pass catcher is Carrion Johnson. Carrion uh, Johnson on the year has target counts of one, 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 two, two, three, zero. That's going back to week two, but he has only 16 total opportunities on the year. Or scratch that, he has 16 total opportunities in this in the last four games, this four-game sample size that I was kind of breaking things down on in my notes. He was being used more heavily early in the season, seven carries week one, eight carries, and a target week two uh, before he started taking a back seat to DeAndre Swift. So if you're the Lions, and we know that the Lions are pretty old school in their thinking with Patricia and Bevel. We know that they want to run the ball to set up the deep passing, but running the ball is a big part of what they want to do. And if you're playing a team that's going to be missing its starting running back and its starting quarterback, and you are going to be missing your alpha wide receiver, your slot wide receiver, and what you have left is you know, you like to use multiple backs. So you still have two of your three-man backfield. You're missing your RB1. How are you likeliest to try to win this game? What we're likeliest to see here is anywhere from 25 to 30 carries for the Lions. 25 is likeliest, what, the, the range in which we land, with about six to eight targets. Now, if that sounds like a lot... I will note that the Lions across their last four games have produced 29.8 running back opportunities per game. 
Adrian Peterson has one game this season with 23 opportunities. He's had 17 or fewer in every other game this year. So it's pretty fair to pencil in on Johnson for 12 to 14 running back opportunities. Now on DraftKings, he costs 4K. If he gets up to 14 opportunities, that's three and a half opportunities per 1K spent. So if we look at other running backs available on the slate this week, we have Dalvin Cook, who has been in that 3.5 opportunities per 1K in three of his last five weeks, but those are the only three times all season when Dalvin Cook has been in that range. Miles Sanders has gotten into that range twice this season. Mike Davis has gotten there once. James Robinson and Todd Gurley will probably get there this week, but at higher price tags and a tougher matchup than Carrion has. Antonio Gibson has gotten there once this year. Damian Harris will likely get there if Sony Michelle is out, but Damian Harris will get there without any receptions. Duke Johnson could get there. Naheem Hines has gotten there once. J.D. McKissick has gotten there in back-to-back games with Alex Smith, but obviously Washington was down by three scores at halftime in both of those. And then past that, we start getting into these all these other running backs who are kind of priced in that carry-on Johnson range. So I say all that to say, if carry-on gets 14 touches, that might not or 14 opportunities, that might not seem like something that we would typically want to target. And obviously, with 14 opportunities, he has almost no shot at the bonus. So that hurts us. That's different than saying Dalvin Cook getting 3.5 opportunities per 1K spent. Or even if, let's say, Miles Sanders gets there this week uh, at almost 7K in salary, they have a much better shot at the bonus at those three extra points. That makes a difference. More touches means more opportunities for things to play out in the small sample size of a single game. So if we got carry on 14 touches week in and week out, he would over time produce enough scores that would justify rostering him at only 4K in salary. With only 14 touches, there are fewer opportunities for that to play out in the sample size of a single game. So there's more opportunities for basically like somebody like Dalvin, you're going to be looking at 20 to 35 points carry on you could be looking at anywhere from six points to 18 because things could swing wildly on only 14 touches it gives less time for things to sort of even out in the sample size of a single game but we're talking about leverage we're talking about trying to build for first place in a tournament and we're talking about a roster where we're leaving 10k in salary on the table so this is not a guy who we're going out of our way to isolate this week but if you get up to these pricier running backs. Mike Davis is a really solid bet on paper. Dalvin Cook is a really solid bet on paper. But once we get past those two, we get into a lot of question marks. A lot of guys who could produce a really strong game, but also could disappoint pretty severely at their price tags. Again, not that all of them are going to disappoint, but enough of them are going to disappoint that people are going to hit craters at those higher priced running back spots. And people are so used to paying up for running back that most people aren't even going to be looking down in this range. So I think that carry on Johnson is an extremely interesting play this week at only 4k in salary. If you compare him to what you could get in 4k for 4k in salary at the wide receiver position, you're giving yourself a really nice range and then you can spend that salary elsewhere. So carry on Johnson is a guy who I will probably have on well, I don't know, three to five, maybe as many as six builds this week. I could certainly see it being as few as three, but he's a guy that I'm going to be looking at in a few spots because 
He's a guy who, again, he could get 18, 19, 20 points. And there's an outside shot that he kind of takes over this backfield. It's not expected, especially with this dinosaur coaching staff. It's expected that we see Adrian Peterson getting his 15 to 17 opportunities in this one. But again, there's an outside shot that Carrion can actually take over and get 20 plus points. And nobody's going to have carry on this week. It makes him a very interesting play at only 4K in salary. So if you're building along at home right now, we have one setup from that Bengals-Washington game with Burrow and T. Higgins and Cam Sims. We have carry on Johnson from this Detroit-Carolina game. The next game I'm going to go to is the Patriots and Texans. So when I was looking through this slate at the front end of the week, I was surprised at how much this game stood out to me. When I was looking at ownership on late Thursday night, early Friday morning, I was disappointed to find that it seems that the field is expected to be on this game as well. We currently have Jacoby Myers at like 7%. Levitan has him at about 11%, but Osimo has him at 20%, which seems closer to what we will actually see this week. I would expect that as we get to Saturday night, Sunday morning, uh, ETR's ownership projections, OWS's ownership projections will look a lot closer to what Osmos are already showing. Osmo also has Deshaun Watson as one of the higher-owned quarterbacks this week. So we have a game that I was surprised at how much I liked it. And when you're surprised at how much you like a game, it becomes the sort of spot where you're surprised how much you like it because you didn't expect to like it, right? And and that means that there's still reasons to not like it. But if you're surprised at how much you like a game, you can find yourself starting to bump up your ownership in that game. But if the field starts doing the same thing, that can start bringing a game into over-owned territory. And so, you know, for example, one thing we need to think about in this game is that the Patriots, they slow down the game's to a a significant pace. They're very good at maintaining drives. Again, top eight in drive success rate, top eight in yards per drive. Their issue has been all these turnovers. And as we noted in the NFL Edge write-up for this game, the Texans don't produce a lot of turnovers. And so there's potential for the Patriots to just kind of control very long drives, take a lot of time off the clock. The Patriots are I believe running the fewest drives per game, uh, fewer even than the Panthers. In fact, let me check that real quickly. Yes, 9.2 drives per game. To put that in perspective, there are only eight teams in the entire NFL that run under 10 drives per game. The Patriots are all the way down at 9.2. Houston runs 10 drives per game, which is obviously on the lower end of what we typically see as well. The Patriots allow the fewest opponent plays per game. So it's possible the Patriots allow under 58 plays per game. And Houston runs the fewest plays per game at 58.8. The way that works is we would actually take the median and say how far below the median do team do the Patriots essentially hold teams, which is about 10% below the, or I should say the mean. Uh, the Patriots hold their, their average opponent about 10% below the average number of plays that a typical NFL team runs. Houston is also about 10% below 
what the average NFL team typically runs. And so if we actually played out this matchup 100 times, we would expect Houston to come in about 10% below where they normally are, which would be about 53 plays per game for Houston. So there's absolutely potential in this game for, let's say Deshaun Watson runs the ball seven times. Let's say he gets sacked twice. Let's say Duke Johnson runs the ball 15 times. That that leaves potential for Deshaun Watson to throw under 30 pass attempts. In fact, if we played this game out over and over again, about 30 pass attempts is right about where he would land. And there's clear potential for the Texans pieces to disappoint if Watson's throwing only 30 pass attempts. If this game becomes becomes super popular, there's obviously clear potential for this to break in different directions. Now, the interesting thing is that this game environment as a whole still shapes up really well. The Patriots, again, have been really good at maintaining drives, at picking up yards. They just haven't been able to finish drives, and a lot of that is because they've been turning the ball over so often. With Houston not forcing turnovers, there's potential for the Patriots to be scoring points, and there's obviously potential for Houston to be scoring points when they have the ball. So how would we play that in tournaments? Well, if everybody ends up on Watson and Brandon Cooks and Jacoby, we want to be doing something a little bit different. So I like Jacoby a lot this week. We're going to get to the straight bottom-up build here in just a moment as far as just how I would put in just straight value. But if we're looking to be a little bit different with our pieces from this game, the way to do it would be to take one of these Patriots running backs and to pair that running back with the piece from the Texans who's likeliest to succeed. So the pieces from the Texans likeliest to succeed, taking away Watson, uh, skill position players in order, would be Brandon Cooks, then Will Fuller, then Duke Johnson. Brandon Cooks can still go on a roster like this. You can still take a higher-owned guy on a roster like this, but you'd be looking for ways to differentiate in something else that you're doing. So on this roster, I would go, again, we're pretending like the salary cap is 4K. We're pretending like we're getting getting a lot of ownership on Jacoby and Cooks. So I would swing over to Burkhead and Brandon Cooks. Burkhead has uh, his last three games, six carries, 12 carries, six carries. His last three games, four catches, three catches, one catch. That is not elite usage. That leaves a lot to be desired. That leaves plenty of opportunities for Burkhead to disappoint. But at 4,600 and with the leverage this gives us, he's an interesting piece to consider here. And he's a guy that I'm going to throw up on this leveraged and correlated bottom-up build. That gives us Rex Burkhead. That gives us Brandon Cooks. Again, Brandon Cooks, uh, his recent target counts, 8, 9, 9, 9, and 12. That is since Bill O'Brien got fired. So 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 targets is what we're looking at here at only 5,200. Um, just a great spot for Brandon Cooks. So 5,200 on Brandon Cooks, 4,600 on Rex Burkhead. And that gives us a roster so far of Burrow plus T. Higgins plus Cam Sims, Carrion Johnson, Rex Burkhead, and Brandon Cooks. The next place I'm going to go is over to tight end. This is not my favorite play. This is a leveraged build type of play. But Logan Thomas, 
is going to get a lot of traction this week. Dallas Goddard is going to get a lot of traction this week. TJ Hawkinson is going to get some traction. I love Goddard just because I know that he has 30-point games in him. Last week, I rostered Goddard on 22 of 22 rosters. He got about seven points. And I really wasn't that disappointed about that move because here's the thing. Most tight ends, you risk getting seven points, but most tight ends, you don't have a shot at 25 to 30 points when they hit. Most tight ends, when they hit, you're getting 15, 16 points, and that's with a touchdown. Goddard can get to 15, 16 points without a touchdown. So Goddard is a super sharp play at 3,800. Richard Rogers, it looks like Zach Ertz is not going to be back. Richard Rogers had five targets last week while Goddard had six. Richard Rogers is still out on the field. Richard Rogers is a really sharp play, and he could also be a way to leverage off of the chalk. But I'm actually throwing Jared Cook in here. And this becomes a little bit different now. So I built this bottom-up build roster yesterday, Thursday, before the news started coming out that Taysom Hill is going to be the starting quarterback. Schefter has said that Taysom Hill is going to be the starting quarterback. It seems likely that Jameis sees snaps. But it also seems likely that the Saints are going to design a Taysom-heavy game plan and see what that looks like. Now, if that ends up, it's kind of funny, too, against this Atlanta defense that is so good against the run and so bad against the pass. But whatever it is, what it is. If if reports continue looking like this up to Sunday, Taysom is under center, that makes Jared Cook less valuable. But I want to talk about this angle just so that we have a feel for why we would put a piece like this onto our build. Again, we're pretending like we have about a 40K salary cap instead of a 50K salary cap. And so how would we do something different than the field is doing? Now, obviously, with a 40K salary cap, we wouldn't see heavy ownership on Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara. But let's talk about this as if we're still dealing with that full slate type of ownership. Well, people are going to be betting on Kamara and Michael Thomas because they want to get pieces of this offense. What we would want to do is say, you have to pay a lot in salary to get these pieces that are kind of, kind of have a lot more uncertainty than you really want at those price tags. Alvin Kamara is 9,200. I can't even fathom playing that with what his role almost always is in this offense. We've covered that ad nauseum. How, how big he misses and how often he misses compared to what the field's assumptions are, uh, beliefs are around Kamara. Uh, And then Michael Thomas, obviously, you have, if it's Jameis under center, which is how I built this roster, assuming would be the case, if it's Jameis under center, well, Thomas thrives on on volume and accuracy. The reason he was so powerful last year was because he caught whatever it was, like 88% of the passes thrown to him. So even though he was working the short areas of the field, that heavy volume and that high catch rate allowed him to just rack up points week in and week out. Well, if Jameis is off on just three or four passes that Drew Brees would have hit Michael Thomas on, that significantly lowers Michael Thomas's value. It it you know takes away a lot of the reasons why we would be playing Michael Thomas. And so again, taking Jared Cook, a guy who is more touchdown dependent, a guy who is more big play dependent, 
gives us an opportunity to get a piece of this offense without paying up for these higher priced guys, get a piece of this offense that would be lower owned. And so Jared Cook in this leveraged bottom-up build is the guy who I put in. Again, that was before the Taysom reports were coming out. But I wanted to leave him in for that discussion just to talk about what the thinking would be there to say, well, I want to get a piece of this offense, but I want to get off of these higher priced and higher owned guys. I also want to get off of these higher owned tight ends that are down in this cheaper end of the price range and get somebody who could outscore them. So if if Goddard has another seven, eight, nine point game instead of a 25 point game, well, then Cook is really just competing against a bunch of other tight ends who could get six or seven and could get 15 or 16. So if Cook gets the 15 or 16 and everybody else gets the six or seven, Cook puts you in really good shape at much lower ownership than a lot of these other guys will carry. The last spots on this bottom-up build are KJ Hamler and the Dolphins' defense. I'm going to point you to Hilo's NFL Edge right up for this game for a deeper sense of, of why these two pieces fit well together. But People are going to be on the Dolphins' defense. People are not going to be on the Broncos' offense. But the Broncos should still throw the ball about 40 times. And K.J. Hamler is only 3,600. He has 10 targets in back-to-back weeks. He's going to get a lot of his snaps out of the slot where he'll get to deal with Nick Needham instead of dealing with Byron Jones and Xavier Howard on the perimeter. If he is not dealing with Byron Jones and Xavier Howard, that means that Jerry Judy and Tim Patrick are dealing with them. Tim Patrick is going to be on the perimeter almost the entire game. Judy will see some snaps in the slot, so he'll get away from those guys as well. But K.J. Hamler is going to be the guy who the Dolphins are most willing to let soak up some catches, most willing to not put their top guys on. And that opens opportunities, not necessarily for guaranteed production, but opens opportunities for another 8 to 10 targets for Hamler. And at 3,600 with game-breaking speed, there's plenty to like there. I mean, two weeks ago, he saw 10 targets, only turned six of those into receptions, also had a carry for 15 yards, and piled up 90 total yards, catching only 60% of the passes thrown to him. Last year, he piled up 50 total yards, catching only 40% of the passes thrown to him. So on a Per touch basis, there's a lot of upside with Hamler. And at 3,600 on a team that's going to be passing a lot, where he should be getting a lot of targets, he's a very interesting piece. And we know why the why the Dolphins' defense is a good play. Uh, they should be pretty popular this week. But putting them together gives you an interesting build, something that's different from what the field will have. That is our leveraged bottom-up build or correlated bottom-up build. But I also want to hit on this sort of straight value bottom-up build. And I want to mention a few other pieces that are in the lower ends of the price range who are also really interesting. We're going to hit on these guys in the player grid as well. But first, this straight bottom-up build. The straight bottom-up build, I'm taking out Rex Burkhead. I'm putting in Jacoby Myers. That is not a surprise. You know from reading the NFL Edge that I like Jacoby quite a bit this week. You know why I like Jacoby quite a bit this week. Jacoby is obviously a much sharper play than Rex Burkhead if we take out ownership, if we take out strategy and game theory and all of that. So Jacoby goes in, Rex Burkhead comes out. 
in that running back spot where Rex Burkhead was, I'm going all the way up to Mike Davis. Now, I could go to Naheem Hines. Uh, We'll talk about him in the player grid as well. I could go to J.D. McKissick opposite Joe Burrow, which is actually a really interesting way to build here. You could say, you could say, I don't think that any of these Bengals pass catchers go for 25 plus points, but I think that Burrow at 50, you know, we've got a week where Deshaun Watson might throw only 29 times, where Aaron Rodgers is playing against Indianapolis, where Cam Newton is so up and down, hit or miss, and he needs about 25 points at his salary, 26 points at his salary for you to feel really good about rostering him. And he needs about 30 points to really smash his price tag. There's just a lot of quarterbacks to not love. You know, a lot of quarterbacks to like, but not love. So if Burrow gets you 22 or 23 or 24 points at only 5,500, he could actually end up being one of the most valuable quarterbacks on the slate. He could get you 23, 24, 25 points, and that could be you know, tied for the top salary multiplier out of all quarterbacks and could free up salary for other things. But just because Burrow's getting 23, 24, 25 doesn't mean that any individual pass catcher, Boyd is, I think, 5,600, T. Higgins is 5,900, uh, Geo is going to be involved, but P. Ryan's going to be getting carries, which makes it tough to play Geo. Uh, AJ Green is going to be rotating a little bit with Auden Tate. So it's possible for none of these pass catchers to be part of a tournament winning roster. But for Burrow, just because there's not a high probability of any smash quarterback scores this week, it's possible for Burrow to actually be one of the top quarterbacks, again, without one of his receivers coming with him. Now, if Burrow is one of the top quarterbacks, that probably means that the Bengals are scoring points, and it might even mean that the Bengals are playing from in front in this one, which means that Washington is having to pass more. We have seen that when Washington Washington has to pass more, they throw the ball a ton to J.D. McKissick. In Alex Smith's two starts, J.D. McKissick has 14 and 15 targets. That's unbelievable. So again, Washington was down by three scores at halftime in both of those games, right? There's no guarantee that we see that again, but Burrow plus McKissick would be a really interesting way to build that one. Again, Naheem Hines could go in there, but once we get past those guys, there's just a lot of, I mean, there's question marks on those guys. There's question marks on Damian Harris, question marks on Antonio Gibson, And so once we get up to these guys, why not spend a little bit extra and go up to Mike Davis, who we know his role is going to be locked in. We know that he should get, if Gameflow cooperates, he should get 20 plus opportunities in this spot in a really good matchup. So Mike Davis at 6,800 is going to go onto this bottom up build. I'm actually taking out T Higgins altogether because Deontay Johnson is the same price and is a better play and is kind of our weekly staple on the bottom of build outside of the weeks when he's gotten injured mid game. He has served us tremendously well on this bottom up build. Uh, So Deontay Johnson at 5,900, since we're not worried about correlating or leveraging this particular roster, we're just looking for value. Uh, So Deontay Johnson is going to stay. 
in order to still give us a piece opposite Burrow or in that same game as Burrow, we're going to go down to Logan Thomas at tight end. We expect anywhere from five to seven, maybe even eight targets for Thomas in a really good matchup. Again, I actually like Goddard a little bit more just for the pure upside, but I want to give some correlation to this roster and also get the cheapest tight end in here. Logan Thomas is the cheapest tight end I feel really comfortable with this week at 3,300. And... Then at defense, we're going to drop from the Dolphins down to the Browns, save a little bit of extra money. The Browns, again, have forced 14 turnovers this year near the top of the league, 22 sacks near the top of the league. Uh, It hurts that Miles Garrett is now going to be out. That helps the Philly offense as a whole, obviously. But the Browns at 3K are a nice salary saver at defense this week. That gives us a straight value bottom-up build of Burrow at quarterback, Carrion and Mike Davis at running back, Brandon Cooks, Deontay Johnson, KJ Hamler, Jacoby Myers, Logan Thomas, and the Cleveland Browns. Now, the last thing I want to talk about on this roster is that there are some other cheap wide receivers to consider. And there are two in particular that I want to highlight. I think that the Steelers wide receivers are going to end up being one of the more popular spots this week. There's just not a lot to love at wide receiver. And as I broke down in the uh, DFS interpretation segment of that NFL Edge write-up, 10, so uh, across the last four weeks for the Steelers, They have three key wide receivers. So across four weeks, three key wide receivers, that gives us 12 total, quote, games, right? Four from Deontay, four from Juju, four from Claypool. Deontay got hurt in one of those, so we'll call it 11 total games. In those 11 total games, Steelers wide receivers have produced 10 games of at least 13.7 DraftKings Points. So the floor on these guys is extraordinarily high to say that you could take all three of these receivers and basically bank on each of them scoring at least 13.7 points. There's a high likelihood of that happening. Again, two of their three non-Baltimore weeks, uh, two of these guys combined for 46 or more points. And so I think that the Steelers wide receivers are going to be popular. We also know that the Steelers have a tremendous defense, and I think that people will either say, okay, let me just not take a pass catcher from the other side. Let me take one or two Steelers pass catchers and nobody from the Jags. Or if they take somebody from the Jags, they're likely to take James Robinson with Chris Thompson out. We know that his role expands when Chris Thompson's out. But the Steelers are likely to be playing with a lead, and their run defense is elite, and we're not really getting a discount on James Robinson. So sure... The role is nice. I mean, similar to Mike Davis last week, but at a higher price tag. The role is nice, but you really need about 26 to 28 points from James Robinson. It's really difficult to see him getting that against the Steelers. Uh, And then, you know, if people go to DJ Chark, well, fine, right? He can hit. He has the upside. But if he misses, he tends to miss hard. And you're spending a lot in salary for a guy who could miss pretty hard. The way to leverage that is Chris Conley, who costs 3K in salary. Chris Conley is going to be out there almost every snap. 
Chris Conley, when LaVisca Chenault is healthy, he has this downfield role. When LaVisca is out, he's taking on some of LaVisca's shorter targets and he's still maintaining his downfield role. This might seem trivial. It's something I've mentioned before. It might seem trivial, but to me it's not. And that's the fact that Chris Conley is a team captain on the Jaguars. He's a team captain as a non-starter, which really stands out to me just in so far as this is a guy who they like. This is a guy who they trust. This is a guy who they feel does all the little things right. He's a, he's a veteran player who's a good leader for this really young team. And we see that translate to the field when he's out there. When he gets these opportunities to play, he's almost always going to see seven to eight targets. We expect the Jags to be behind. Now, they could end up throwing the ball only 25 times because they just get stomped and aren't able to maintain any drives. But as long as they're able to throw the ball enough times, there's a high probability that Chris Conley sees, we'll call it five to eight targets, but eight targets is likeliest. Chris Conley is six foot three. He has speed downfield, right? We're not taking like, this is why, like last week, I would have played, I played Conley on six of my rosters, six of my 22 rosters last week, and I played Jakeem Grant on nine of my 22 rosters. They were both 3K in salary. But Jakeem Grant is five foot six, was being put in a perimeter role for which he doesn't really fit. All he's really running is these eight yard curl routes. And when he catches them, there's not much opportunity for him to do anything with the ball. And it's harder to score touchdowns on those. So Jakeem Grant ended up getting a touchdown last week. But again, it was on one of those little eight-yard curl routes. And so somebody like Conley last week, because of the wind in Green Bay, um, I bumped him down and took him on fewer rosters than Grant. The matchup this week is horrific against Pittsburgh. But Conley in like a similar matchup to Jakeem Grant, I would take Conley every time because those eight targets just have so much more opportunity for a 16-point game, a 20-point game, a 22-point game. So if we played out this slate 100 times, how many times is Conley actually going to get to a score like that? I don't know, 15 to 20 times. But the rest of the time, he's still, because so many targets are there, he's still going to get you seven, eight, nine points at only 3K in salary. Uh, He's going to have some games with 12 points, some games with 13 or 14 points. And so he's Typically, out of eight targets, he's going to catch four or five. He's not some elite player, but he has enough elite traits that the Jaguars are able to use him in an upside-producing role, and that's what's really important to me about this spot for Conley. So Conley at 3K is a very interesting way to bring back a piece from these, you know, on your Steelers builds and a way to differentiate your Steelers builds. Let's say that we move... Closer to Sunday, and Deontay is projected at 22 to 25% owned. It wouldn't be surprising to me if he gets there. Obviously, we're in this bubble where we understand how good Deontay is, and we really love him. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who still think that his huge games and his unbelievable, massive set of targets, people still probably think it's fluky, but I think that people are catching on more and more. It wouldn't surprise me if he's grabbing ownership. And if Claypool and Juju both get over 10% ownership. So if that happens, but Conley is down at 2 or 3% ownership, we immediately are able to differentiate some of our Steelers rosters by bringing them back with Chris Conley at only 3K. Again, the risk is relatively low because when he misses, 
Now, the matchup brings in some extra risk, obviously, but typically when Conley misses in, in this full-time role, he's still going to get you eight or nine points, and that's not going to kill you at 3K in salary. In fact, a lot of people are going to be taking eight or nine points from a 4,500 wide receiver or a 5,500 wide receiver, even like a 6K, 7K wide receiver. So taking those eight or nine pretty locked-in points with upside for more is a nice way to go. Again, I'll reiterate that this matchup against the Steelers introduces some legitimate risk that Conley could end up with four or five points. But again, 3K in salary, we're talking about tournaments, we're talking about trying to get first place. He's a very interesting piece to consider here. The other wide receiver I want to mention is, and again, I'm going to cover these guys in the player grid as well, or at least list them and mention them briefly, Uh, but it's Denzel Mims, and Mims is running legitimate routes. And what I mean by that and why I say that is Brashad Perriman is still running Brashad Perriman type routes. So Perriman has two games with Flacco. He has eight targets and seven targets in those two games. He has 62 yards and 101 yards in those two games. He had two touchdowns to go with his 101 yards. He's certainly in play as well at 4,300, but Mims is being used all over the field. And we know how good the Chargers are at preventing downfield throws, but they're not great at limiting catches. They're not great at stopping short throws. And Mims is going to run some short routes. He's going to run some intermediate routes. He's going to run some downfield routes. He had only three targets against Kansas City, but he had seven against Buffalo the week before that. He had eight against New England the week after that. I'll also note that the week when Mims had eight targets against New England, Perriman had seven targets against New England, Flacco only threw 25 times. Now, Crowder had only two targets in that game. That's not always going to be the case. But there's a pretty clear path for each of these guys to be in this six to eight target range again. And Mims is only 3300 I mean, that's a really cheap price for a talented receiver who's probably going to see six, seven, or eight targets. Now, the matchup isn't the best, but there's certainly enough to like here that at 3,300, he's a very interesting play, and he's a play who I don't think a lot of people will be on this week. So Denzel Mims is another guy down here that is interesting to consider at 3,300. I mentioned the other tight ends that I like this week in this cheaper price range. Uh, Dallas Goddard, Richard Rogers, Logan Thomas has been on one of our bottom-up builds, Jared Cook on another. TJ Hawkinson should see, again, seven to eight targets with Amendola and Kenny Galladay out. Eric Ebron is an interesting pivot off of the other Steelers pass catchers. And really, at tight end, there's just so many different ways that you can go. And then again, at running back, we hit on some of these other Less expensive pieces that I like, Naheem Hines, J.D. McKissick. And uh, the last piece I want to mention is the Miami backfield. Uh, Looks like Matt Breida is going to return this week, which throws a huge wrench into any predictability in this backfield. But it's interesting in tournaments, again, these guys are cheap enough that you can take on some risk. It's interesting in tournaments to try to guess which Dolphins running back ends up getting all the work. Because if one of them gets all the work, if one of them gets 18 to 22 touches, you can get 18 to 22 really cheap touches on a favored team this week. 
And so Dolphins running back is just kind of penciled on the fringes of my list as well. That really covers all of the plays under 5K that I like, under 5,500 that I like. Um, we'll have a few more wide receivers that we'll hit on in the player grid, but gives a good sense of how I'm seeing the bottom half of this slate and different ways that I would want to piece things together and sort of maneuver around the field. Last thing I want to hit on before we get out of here is a couple angles that I probably won't hit on, or I might hit on them in the player grid, but may not hit on in the player grid. One of those I talked about in the NFL edge, and that's the understanding that if we're looking for leverage, if we're looking for first place in a tournament, everyone's going to be on Dalvin Cook because the Vikings should control this game against Dallas. That's expected. That's likely. But what if the Vikings don't control this game against Dallas? So in the NFL edge, we hit on the fact that every big wide receiver game from the Vikings this year has come in a competitive game or a game where the Vikings have been trailing. So there will be people who say, okay, I'm going to take Dalvin and then I'll hedge with some Jefferson. I'll hedge with some, with some Thielen. But recognize that you have to really go all out there. It can't just be about hedging with Jefferson and Thielen. It has to be about hedging with Jefferson and Thielen because the Cowboys are playing with a lead or the Cowboys are keeping this game very competitive. They're putting up points. So non-Dalvin rosters should consider playing Dallas pass catchers plus Minnesota pass catchers. You could even go Dalton plus Dallas pass catchers plus Minnesota pass catchers. And in fact, out of 19 builds, I'll almost certainly have a couple rosters that go in that direction. So that's one angle that I want to mention that is is really valuable because if Dalvin Cook has five times as much ownership as the Minnesota wide receivers, the question then becomes, is he five times as likely to outproduce these guys? Is, is, he fi- is it five times as likely that Minnesota controls this game? Dallas is coming off of a bye. We know that Andy Dalton is not Dak Prescott, but we also know that Kellen Moore knows how to design offenses. We know that Mike McCarthy has his good traits. We know that Andy Dalton produced far better last year than he did in his first game under center this year, and then he got hurt in his second game. There's certainly potential. You know, just like a month ago, we were all picking on this Minnesota defense. There's certainly potential for Dalton to Gallup or Dalton to Amari or Dalton to CeeDee Lamb to get this game going, force the Vikings to throw the ball a little bit more, and for Dalvin to disappoint while a Vikings pass catcher hits and while underowned or unowned Cowboys pieces hit. Uh, when we're looking for not what's likeliest to happen, but what actually has potential to win you a tournament? Like what has enough upside to win you a tournament? The talent for the prices on Amari and CeeDee Lamb and Michael Gallup, the, the gap there is huge, right? Like if things just go right, these guys are capable of 25 to 30 point scores at you know these really cheap price tags, 5K range all the way down to 3,700 on Gallup. 
Uh, and then again, you know, we have these Vikings wide receivers who we know are capable of putting the slate out of reach. And so if these if things break the right way to where these incredibly low-owned Dallas pieces end up producing, that also means that Justin Jefferson or Adam Thielen have a higher likelihood of putting up one of these slate out of reach type of scores. And it's just a setup most people won't have. So that's one that I wanted to mention. The other one I wanted to mention, I talked about it in the NFL Edge write-up for this game, but it's the idea of taking a look at how the Colts have played and recognizing that the Colts are adaptable and recognizing that there's a good chance that if Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams have a really good game against this often tough Indianapolis defense, but again, it's a tough Indianapolis defense that really hasn't faced a lot of great teams. So if Rodgers and Adams do have a monster game, it's likely that the Colts shift over to Naheem Hines once again and give him another 16 to 18 touches. And so something like a Rodgers plus Adams plus Hines roster is going to be unique. It's going to be under-owned. And it's going to be an interesting way to create paths to first place in tournaments this week. So looking for ways that we can move off of what's likely to happen and take some things that are a little bit less likely to happen, but that would make us a lot of money if they hit because they have enough upside to matter and ownership is going to be low enough that if they hit that upside, you're moving way ahead of the field. Uh, Those are a couple of the angles that I'm looking at this week. Again, This is another week like last week where it's not going to be quite like last week where, you know, tournament winners are scoring under 200 points. I even mentioned before those last 34 seconds in the Buffalo-Arizona game, the Wildcat winner was going to have under 180 points. Just unbelievable. But this is a week where we're probably not seeing a 200 and maybe, you know, millimaker anything can happen. But in most tournaments, we're probably not seeing a 230-point score, a 225-point score. And so... If you can get up to 200, 210, 215, you can put yourself in position for one of those first place finishes. In fact, I think it was, uh, I mentioned earlier this week that this was the week, the week before Thanksgiving was when I took down the Wildcat last year. And I believe it was with a score of like 215. And so this shapes up as one of those types of weeks where you probably won't need one of these monster elite scores. And part of the reason for that is there will be fewer of these monster elite scores available. So if the monster elite scores do come from one of these lower owned spots, there are going to be fewer opportunities for other people to catch you because there are going to be fewer monster elite scores coming out of other spots. So on a week where there are some really clear top spots, it doesn't make as much sense to dig around in things like Dallas, passing attack versus Minnesota or Rodgers plus Adams plus Hines. Because if that hits, you're still probably just keeping pace or even falling behind the heavy ownership on the really obvious spots. But on a week where there are no really obvious spots, just clear certain high certainty smash spots, if you can get one of these lower owned smashes, you can gain a huge edge because there's just fewer opportunities for everybody else to catch you. There are fewer spots available that will produce the types of scores that will allow other people to catch you. So keep that in mind as you build this week. That's an important thing to remember about how this particular slate shapes up and how we should be building as a result. With that, 
I'm going to get out of here. I appreciate, as always, you guys hanging out, listening to the Angles podcast, and hopefully I'm, I'm helping to get your feet under you for this week. It's a unique week. It's not... It's not what we would typically look at and say, oh, this is a perfect week for OWS. But it is a week that's going to be tougher for, it's been interesting to see how different weeks shape up. You know, like last week, it was pretty clear that it was not a week that set up well for most of us, for most of our styles of play. This is a week that doesn't set up all that well for our typical style of play, but it sets up better for us than it will for most of our competition because there are some traps this week that I think a lot of the field will fall into. There are some angles to play this week that most of the field will miss. And over the long run, this is definitely a slate that would be uh, net profitable for the OWS family as a whole. There's just uh, a lot of things that we have little, little edges on throughout this slate. And if we can put those little edges together, uh, that can combine for big edges over time. So um, think about those things this week. It's a unique slate. It's a little bit different from what we would typically feel is one that gives us a big edge, but there are definitely edges to be found on this one. So I will see you on the player grid. You might actually be listening to this on the player grid, and I will see you uh, on the site throughout the weekend. I will see you at the top of the leaderboards in week 11.